continuing on in the book of John, the Gospel of John in chapter 7. You know, something that's maybe not directly related to this study either, but the Lord gave me an illustration yesterday. And I'm sitting in my daughter's bedroom. And a lot of you know my 13-year-old Amy. Well, she's soon to be 13 years old. And, and Amy, when, when I enter her room, first thing she does is gets up and goes and locks the door so I cannot leave. Because I belong to her. And it's playtime. And it, I cannot think of a single instance in her 13 years where I have approached her to hang out with her, to spend time with her where she has rejected me or she's been too busy or too preoccupied to where she wouldn't, she wouldn't drop what she was doing right now to spend time with me. It's always me pulling away from her. I got to go to work. I got to, I got to study. I've got to, I got to eat. I've got to whatever. Oh, you know, one more wrestling match. And, and so I'm sitting there, and I'm spending time with her, and I forget what we were doing. We were coloring. She likes to color and likes to draw. And I just, I just sit there on the beanbag chair, and she, you know, she'll draw a shark or something, and she'll hold it up, and I cheer her on, and, and she'll just go. And the Lord, the Lord spoke to me, and he, he, he told me that he wishes... I was like that toward him. Just always wanting to be with him. Never wanting to break that fellowship. And so I'm convinced that the Lord has put her in my life as a living illustration of the relationship that he desires with me. John chapter 7. Let me get there right quick. Had a tough day today, actually. And um, I wasn't a happy guy most of the day. And that's not typical for me. I can usually handle quite a bit of stress and make many decisions and put out several fires. But for some reason today, I was, I was twisted in my mind. And about four o'clock, you know, I'm sitting at my desk and I am I'm, I'm wanting to, to choke this man who's on the other end of the phone line who's helping me with some technical support. And I'm just, I'm wanting to, I, I mean, I, I wanted to throw my phone, and I, but I thought to myself, it's expensive. <laughs> and then I'm thinking, I, my goodness, I'm, I'm going to be teaching a Bible study here in about three hours. I, I have got to snap out of this. So I went and ate. That seemed to help. Said some prayers. And that helped. 
and then we're singing, you know, uh, Good, Good Father. You know, Chris Tomlin, he's, uh, I don't know if you know anything about him, but the guy can write the best song every single day of his life. The guy's been cranking out fantastic music for decades. And, you know, he keeps coming up. You know, you, you think, oh, man, it's the best one he's ever written. And he, there's no way he's going to be able to do better than that. And then he comes up, you know, with, you're a good, good father. And I'm loved by you. That's who I am. It's who I am. The backdrop to chapter 7, the, the first half we did last week, I, I, I wasn't here, so I don't, I don't know who delivered that study. Frank, um, Frankie Ray, was it Frankie Ray? Oh man, that guy's classic. Is he here? That guy cracks me up. <laughs> uh, he cracks me up. Some of the heaviest studies I've, I've sat in in my life came from that guy. But the backdrop here is, is the Feast of Tabernacles in chapter 7 here. Bear with this, this section of Scripture here. It's, uh, it, don't, you don't have to turn there, uh, but it's out of Leviticus 23, 33 through 44, and it speaks about this particular feast. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be a Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. And on the first day there should be a holy convocation, and you shall do no customary work on it. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, and on the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation. And you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly, and you shall do no customary work on it. These are the feasts of the Lord, and you shall proclaim to be, that you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, and to offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering, a grain offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings, everything on its day, besides the Sabbaths of the Lord, besides your gifts, besides all of your vows, and besides all of your free will offerings which you give to the Lord. Also on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. And on the first day, there should be a Sabbath rest. And on the eighth day, a Sabbath rest. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day uh, the fruit of the beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year, and it shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths. That your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so Moses declared to the children of Israel the feast of the Lord. It's the third and the great annual feast of the Jews, as we, we saw here in Leviticus. It's also um, sometimes called the feast of ingathering. And it was celebrated immediately after the harvest in the, in the month of Tishri. Um, I'm guessing it's probably something like July for us. 
The celebration lasted for eight days, and during that period, the people left their homes and lived in booths formed of the branches of the trees. The sacrifices offered at this time are mentioned in Numbers 29, and it was um, at this time of the feast that Solomon's temple was dedicated, and mention is made of it after the return from the captivity. This feast was designed to be a memorial of the wilderness wanderings when the people dwelt in booths. And it was also to be a harvest thanksgiving. The Jews at a later time introduced two appendages to the original festival. One was the drawing of water from the pool of Siloam and pouring it out on the altar as a memorial of the water from the rock at Horeb. And also of lighting of the lamps at night as a memorial of the pillar of fire by night during their wanderings. The Feast of Tabernacles, the harvest festival of the Jewish church, was the most popular and important festival after the captivity. It was to the pilgrims who arrived on the 14th day of the month of Tishri, and the feast beginning on the 15th day, like an entrance into the city. Roofs and courtyards, streets and squares, roads and gardens were green with bows of citron and myrtle, palm and willow. The booths recalled the pilgrimage through the wilderness, the ingathering of fruits prophesied of the spiritual harvest. The institution of the Feast of Tabernacles, which was one of three great feasts at which all of the males in Israel were bound to attend and celebrate with more expressions of joy than any of them. So the first half of the chapter... We see that Jesus' brothers are giving him grief. Imagine. Pretend for a second. You are Jesus' brother, Jesus' sister. What's that like? Matthew thirteen fifty five. The people said, Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brother James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Jude 1.1 says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. It is, it's commonly known that Jude is the Judas, right? James, we know James is Jesus' half-brother, and Jude is James' brother. Therefore, Jude is Jesus' brother. But Jude didn't consider him worthy to, be, to call himself the brother of Jesus, Mark 6.3, is this not the carpenter? The son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and, not our, and are not his sisters here with us. And they were offended at him. And keep in mind, they were only really half-brothers and sisters. Because we know who Jesus' father is. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit, and that's a whole nother study Romans chapter 5 and chapter 6 that there was no man involved in his conception therefore he was born perfect without sin he did not inherit the sin of Adam that's the key his family was urging him to go up to the feast at Jerusalem and perform a bunch of miracles come come on they wanted him to show himself to the world in verse 4 of chapter 7 here, they were likely taking heat over Jesus. 
They were likely feeling shamed. I mean, remember what the people were saying about him. He's, he's got a demon. He's performing miracles through demons. He's a liar. He's a false prophet. Jesus lagged behind and went up to Jerusalem uh, secretly, in verse 10, tells us. And then he shows himself during the middle of the feast, in verse 14. He shows up teaching in the temple. The Jews are astounded at his abilities. Remember, they think he is supposed to be a dumb carpenter. They don't realize that he's the almighty creator. They also don't realize that he's able to read their minds. It's funny, I teach 5th and 6th grade on Sundays here. And every now and then I'll throw out to the group, Jesus is reading your mind right now. And I always get, get that look. You're hungry, right? He knows you're hungry. It's the noon service, right? What are you thinking about? They mock him in verse 20. Right? What is verse 20 here? The people answered and said, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? They're lying through their teeth. And then he nails him in verse 21 through 24 by pointing out the indictment, the indictment against him. Jesus said to them, I did one work, and, and you all marvel. Moses, therefore, gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge according with righteous judgment. We just taught that in the children's ministry, chapter 5. Right? There's, a, there's a guy, he's been sick for 38 years. And when, when the pool of Bethesda is stirred up because an angel c- came down, the first one in gets healed. Apparently there goes this guy, he's trying to make it in there and he gets beat every time. And Jesus shows up and says, do you want to be healed? It's a yes or no question. And the guy, he starts telling Jesus like, like why it's not working. And Jesus said, get up. Just get up. Pick up your bed. The guy gets up, he's healed, picks up his bed. And then the Pharisees grave, what, what are you doing? You're not allowed to carry your bed today. And he says, I, the guy who healed me told me to pick up my bed. I picked up my bed. Who was it? I don't know. Some guy. The man with the withered hand. Jesus knew it was the Sabbath day. And he knew. They, they set him up. Or right, we'll put this we'll put this guy with a with a crippled hand. We'll put him there on the, on the Sabbath. You know, we'll get him. We'll we'll bust him, helping this guy. Jesus was so mad. 
Which is easier? For me to say that your sins are forgiven or for me to say to stretch out your hand? Well, for me to say you're forgiven is much easier. Because I don't, there's no, I don't have to prove it. But he said, but that you know that the Son of Man will have, has power on earth to forgive sins. I said, you stretch out your hand. And he healed that man on Saturday. And they wanted to kill him for it. You guys have a donkey? Falls in a ditch on a Saturday? You're going to leave it there? These guys are bad. Where was I? Thank you. He confronts them on their glaring hypocrisy. And guess what? They don't like it. Finding himself desperately in need of money, a man went to the city zoo. Hoping to get a job feeding the animals. Although... No such opportunity was available. The manager, seeing the size and strength of the applicant, suddenly got an idea. You know, he said, there are a few creatures who attract attention, like the gorilla. Unfortunately, one died yesterday. If we got you a special fur suit, would you be willing to imitate him for a few days? The hungry man agreed to try. He was quite successful as he beat his chest and bellowed and shook the bars of his cage, much to the amusement of the visitors, who said that they'd never seen a gorilla with such intelligence. One day, while swinging on the trapeze, he accidentally lost his grip and landed in the lion's den. The huge beast gave a ferocious roar. Backing away, the imposter realized he couldn't cry for assistance without revealing that he was a fake. He retreated, hoping to crawl back over the fence into his own cage. The lion, however, followed him. Finally, in desperation, he yelled, Help! And immediately, the lion said in an undertone, Shut up, stupid! You're going to get us both fired. <laughs> Pretending to be something they're not. Now, it's, it's, it's a funny joke. But these Pharisees, these, these chief priests, they were no joke. They had homicide in mind. When, when I am living in my hypocrisy, it is no joke. It's the real deal. And that brings us to our section for this evening, starting in verse 25. Now, some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However... We know where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out as he taught them in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I am from, and I have not come from myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. 
But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him, and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these, which this man has done? Verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests and the officers sent officers to take him. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and, among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said, you, you will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come? And then in verse 37, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come, out, come unto me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rock, bleh, rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. And now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid their hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before he hears him and knows what he is doing? And they answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And everyone went to his own house, verse 53. Verse 25, some of the bystanders are suddenly beginning to realize something here. Hey, isn't, isn't this the guy that we've been hearing about? That, that uh, the guys in the, in the black robes who want to kill the Pharisees? Isn't it him? Isn't this the, the guy who's supposed to be the enemy of the state? Apparently at this time, it's already common knowledge that there's some kind of a plot to kill Jesus. Matthew twelve fourteen said, The Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. Matthew twenty two fifteen. The Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. Matthew 26, 4. They plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. Matthew 27, 1. When, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. Verse 26, the people are confused. But look, he speaks boldly and they say nothing to him. He's teaching boldly and nothing's being done about it. Isn't this the guy they want to kill? But yet he stands here in the temple preaching away. 
And them guys who want to kill him are standing right over there, listening. What's the deal? It doesn't make sense. The plot to kill Jesus doesn't line up with what they are seeing and hearing. Why would a criminal be allowed to roam free, much less teach in the temple? Do the rulers know something we don't? Are they withholding information from us? Who should we trust? And the same thing still goes on today. People are still confused about Jesus. He's either who he claimed to be, God Almighty, or he's the biggest liar that ever lived on the face of the planet. People say, oh, yeah, I don't, no, he's not God, he, but I, I do believe he was a good teacher. Yeah, right there with Gandhi, Mother Teresa. Well, he didn't claim to be a good teacher. Yeah, he's a good teacher, but he's a good teacher because he's God. But he can't be just a good teacher. He's either God or a lunatic. He can't be just a good teacher. Verse 27, the people presume to know the truth about Jesus. We know where he's from. Galilee, of course. Those, he was hanging out with those fishermen. Yeah, Nazareth. You know, a little suburb right there. Wrong. Was Jesus from Nazareth? Yeah, he, he lived there. But that ain't where he was born. Also, no one knows where the Messiah is from. Wrong. We know where the Messiah is from. What does scripture say? Born in Bethlehem. These people do not know God or his word. The scriptures clearly declare that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2. But you, Bethlehem, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one who will be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. It's key to note here that David is also from Bethlehem, and you get that in 1 Samuel seventeen twelve. The scriptures also clearly declare that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Matthew 2, 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, granted, they didn't have the book of Matthew when they were plotting to kill him, but they did have Micah. Now, verses 28 through 29, Jesus speaks to the people. He says, you think you know me, and you think you know where I'm from. But you don't really know me, and you don't really know where I'm from. Nor do you know him who sent me. Jesus then declares that he not only knows God, but he's been sent to them by God himself. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. That word bosom 
It speaks of the bowels of. Jesus is saying, I am, I'm, from, I'm from the guts of God. I, I'm an integral part, an important, integral piece of God. I am embedded in God. It's like, it's like God took a chunk of himself out and sent it to earth. That's what he's saying. Jesus is claiming to be, claiming to be an essential part of God. I am from him. And if you think about it, the implication here is that he is claiming to be God in verse 29. Verse 30, the people's reaction proves that they understood exactly what Jesus was implying about himself. Why is that? Because they didn't believe he was God in the flesh. Therefore, they must believe that he's a heretic. And if a blaspheming heretic, then he must be killed according to the law. Verse 30, what does it say? It says, then they sought to take him. He said, I'm, I'm from God. And they turned around and said, oh yeah? Well, we're going to kill you. In another gospel, he said, what do you want to kill me for? For which good work? Which good thing? Which healing are you killing me for? We're not killing you for good works or for healing. We're killing you for blasphemy because you claim to be God. Notice they couldn't lay a hand on him. It wasn't his time. It was not his time. Up until right now, it hasn't been my time. And it hasn't been your time. My time's coming. And so is yours. But until then, guess what? Ain't no one or no thing can do nothing to you. Unless permitted by him. We belong to God. We are his possession. We are his thing. That is awesome. I want to be his possession. I ask him every day, Lord, make me, make me stop doing stupid things. Force me. Force me to love you, please. Cover my eyes. Shut my mouth. And he says, you know, I'd like to, but... I want, I want you to do it on your own. Nothing happens to God's people without his permission. Check this out. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword... As it is written, for your sakes we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, neither life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, things present, nor things to come, no height, 
nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, 35 through 39. One of my favorite sections of scripture of all time. It, it, it speaks of God's love and his protection over me. His possession. Verse 31. Notice, there will always be hearts that are open to God's love. Remember the sower and the seed? There was, there was the wayside. There was stony ground. There was, there was thorns. But then there was some good ground. And so the sower went out and he just was throwing seeds everywhere, just scattering it all over the field. And the birds would pluck the seeds that laid on, on the path, the wayside. That was, that was Satan coming. If you're here tonight and you're not born again, you're hearing the word of God, you're either going gonna, gonna, gonna to react to it or, or you're, you're going to let Satan pluck what you, what's being heard from you. And you'll walk out of here tonight. Just as dead as you ever were. Stony ground, no depth. So the, the roots start to go and the thing springs up. Oh, here we go. We're going we're gonna to start growing and boom, it runs into a rock and there's no depth and the sun comes out and <whistles> fries it. For me, it's the thorny ground. That's the thorns, the, the cares of this world. Money. Bank accounts, toys, people. These are, these are the things that, that I grapple with. This is America. It's hard to be sold out in America. Talk to these, these Iranian Christians that are locked up in three-by-three three cells. You think they're having a hard time being sold out for Christ? I mean, I just I go to work and I get a paycheck and I go to the market and I buy a bunch of steaks. In fact, I buy so many steaks, I buy extra steaks and I put them in the spare freezer in the garage for later. I don't say that as a boast, but we are pathetic, pathetically wealthy in America. We don't we don't have to trust God. No one's going hungry. Where was I? The good, the, the, some seed falls on the good ground and it bears fruit. My job is to go into the field and scatter seed as much as I possibly can. I don't go walking around, oh, this landed on the, you know, where, I'm not, the ground. That ain't my concern. That's not your concern. Our concern is to scatter seed. Paul writes, He who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. 2 Corinthians 9.6 Verse 32 through 36, here comes the Pharisees. It's almost like, like when... Darth Vader, you know, shows up on the scene. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. <sighs> Where are they? 
right? I remember 1977, I'm 10 years old, and I'm sitting in the Edwards Cinema, right? And my, our, our, my parents took me and my brother to see Star Wars. We didn't know what we were getting into. And I remember, being, I remember being 10 years old and scared when Vader walked on the screen. I thought to myself, whoa, I'd never seen anything like it. I, it, it blew my mind. I'll never forget that. So <laughs> the Pharisees, I don't know, the black robes and the phylactery. It's like Darth Vader for me. Jesus is becoming more famous among the people, and the Pharisees are envious. They want the spotlight. Matthew 23, 13 through 33. But woe to... Oh, hang on a second. Here, let me... Okay, you're going to have to bear with me on this one. All right, so I have, I have this family member that thinks Jesus is a pacifist. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Never read the Bible, though. But this bumper sticker, I just want to go just rip it off the car and you know i certainly don't want to be a pacifist i hate that bumper sticker and i hate that they think that about jesus jesus was the toughest dude that ever lived if you think about it he's my example but check this out he's he's fed up with these guys i'm gonna hit you with 20 verses in a row out of Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. You neither go in yourself, nor do you allow those who are entering go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive a greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you travel land and sea, to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much the son of hell as yourselves. Pacifist? Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, is it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, which is greater, the gold of the temple or the, or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on the altar, he's obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, which is greater? The gift on the altar or the things on it? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and him who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guide, you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside uh, of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautifully outward, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you outwardly appear righteous to men, 
But inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourself that you are the sons who murdered the prophets. Fill up. Measure up your father's guilt, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? You think Jesus was mad? That was a righteous anger. These people were leading the children that he loved to the lake of fire. You do something to my kids, it's over. I'll I'll give my life defending that without even a thought. The Pharisees and the chief priests dispatched officers to arrest Jesus. Who knows what they have planned? Maybe prison, maybe a beating, maybe some threatenings. We've already heard of rumors of killing. Jesus speaks directly speaks direct truth with these people in verse 33 through 34. Yet, it is a riddle to them. Thirty-three, Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. I know what that means. I'm born again. I got the Spirit of God in me. I know exactly what that means. Before I was born again, I would have been scratching my head too, like, whoa, what's this? What's he talking about? These guys are baffled. 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. The Pharisees are absolutely clueless about God. To them, God is a giant set of rules. Now we got the law right here. About 375 laws right here. You, you wash your hand this way and don't let the water run down this way. And your cup, oh yeah, you wash your cup this way. And don't, don't move your chair on Saturday. I was in Israel in 1998. You can't even ride the elevator on a Saturday. Because you are not allowed to push the button. It's ridiculous. I'm not even kidding. Who's been there? Right? Am I, am I kidding? I'm like... No, just stand back. It, it stops at every floor. It just stops at every floor. Yeah, but like I got... Can't be working. That's work. We laugh. They got their elevators programmed that way. I mean, that is real to them. It's ridiculous. Justice, mercy, and faith have no place in their list of rules. Until I was born again, the things of God made no sense to me. Now, the Spirit illuminated the gospel message so so that I was able to understand my need of salvation that night, the night that I accepted Christ and prayed and asked Him, Lord, be my Savior. I understood real clear. Then, 
But once I was born again, I received the Holy Spirit. And then God illuminated his word and it began to make sense to me. Heaven, hell, the soul, spirit, sin, angels, demons, forgiveness, blood, sacrifice, prayer, fellowship, all these things. I I can't share that with half the people I work with. I think I'm nuts. The religious people and the unbelievers think that he's talking about running off to be with the Gentiles. They're so far off the mark, they have no idea what he's talking about. I think if I'd have been there, I'd have been confused too. We have the benefit of coming, coming along 2,000 years after the fact. We've got the New Testament. We got, we've got it all. We got, you want to know what happens at the end of the world? Flip to the back of the book. We're blessed. The church is blessed. Angels desire to look into the things that we know. But now I'm born again and I have the Spirit of God dwelling me and the words of Jesus make perfect sense. He's saying that he's going back to heaven and taking his rightful position at the right hand of the Father in verse 36. Sort of sounds like Jesus has given up on them. It's kind of scary. When the Almighty and gracious God gives up on a man, it's because the man has crossed the line. And God knows that he will never respond to the calling of the Holy Spirit. This is the unforgivable sin. The one and only unforgivable sin. If Adolf Hitler would have fell on his knees and asked forgiveness, God would have forgave him. But the unforgivable sin is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The continual rejection of God's calling upon my life. And I reject 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 until finally God just says, Okay. If you're, if you're curious about if you've committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, then you haven't. Because if you've committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, you ain't going to wonder. You ain't going to care. It ain't going to cross your mind. You're gone. Jesus said, therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. But the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven men. Verse 37 through 39, Jesus speaks of the coming of the Holy Spirit. He said, come to me for, for a drink if you are thirsty. Throughout scripture, water is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Jesus isn't looking to satisfy a dry mouth or a dry throat here. He's looking to satisfy a dead soul. The part of you that will live forever. Everyone lives forever. Everyone. Every soul will dwell for all of eternity. There's only two places. Paradise or lake of fire. Jesus came to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat by the well. And it was about the sixth hour. And a Samaritan woman came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. 
For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food, and the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For, for Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. And Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. She's not even getting it. Where do, you, where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it, as well as his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered her, Whoever drinks from this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I give him shall be become a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Not only did Jesus have to die to pay for my sin and for your sin, he had to resurrect and return to heaven so that the Spirit could come. You realize that? He, he had to go back to heaven so that he could send the Holy Spirit. Jesus was a man and he could not be everywhere. The Holy Spirit, however, can be everywhere. The Holy Spirit is omnipresent. He operates in China. At the same time, he operates in Afghanistan. At the same time, he operates in the United States of America. Every now and then, he visits Canada. <laughs> Is there any Canadians here? I'm just, just kidding. Just kidding. Bill and Susie. Right here. Where was I? Imagine life on earth without the Holy Spirit. Think about it. Be bad. I wouldn't be saved. It's the Holy Spirit that convicted me of my sin. It's the Holy Spirit that tells me every day, don't look at that. Don't go over there. Why'd you say that? You better fall on your knees, boy, and repent. Who would have convicted your heart of sin and shown you the need of salvation without the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit always points to Jesus. You notice that? As you read scripture, the Holy Spirit never, ever, ever, never speaks of himself. Always points to the Son. Who's the Father point to? The Son. Everyone's pointing at the Son. Notice that? Jesus is the object of our worship. Who does Jesus point to? To the Father, but he also points to himself. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But it's okay that he points to himself. Because he is God Almighty He's the one that came. He's the one that died. He laid it down. He is deserving. He is to be the object of our praise and our adoration. Don't pray to the Holy Spirit. I mean, I get it. Holy Spirit's awesome. We pray to the Son. And, and don't try and pray to the Father by, without the Son. Like, don't try and skip the sun. 
I'm going straight to the Father. No. You, you have access to the Father through the Son. Why, why would anybody try and skip Jesus? It's beyond me. It's like, like it's cool or something. I'm going to share another favorite passage. Paul, Colossians 1.13.20. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him... All things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. All things. He is before all things and in him all things consist. The molecule of oxygen that is coursing through your vein is held together by him right now. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father, pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth, or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. It's all about Jesus. Verse 40 through 44, we're wrapping it up. We have the Jews trying to sort out in their minds what they've just witnessed. Keep in mind, it's unlikely that any of them realized what has just happened, that the almighty creator has stood up at their party and invited them to heaven. You think anyone got that? No. Most of them think he's nuts. But that's exactly what happened. By the way, he's doing that still. The Almighty Creator is standing up and inviting you to heaven. Most of the people are wrong about him. Verse 40, truly this is the prophet. Wrong. This is the Christ. 41, right. He's from Galilee, 41, wrong. Jesus isn't from the seed of David, 42, wrong. The Christ is supposed to be from Bethlehem, 42, right. Someone knew the Bible. Someone knew the scripture. The crowd is divided in their opinion. Jesus said, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. He who finds his life will... Lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, notice some of the officers wanted to take him, but no one did. I wonder what's stopping them from taking Jesus. His time, obviously, had not come yet. And then in verse 45 through 52, we we get a glimpse into the kangaroo court. The good old Sanhedrin. These guys remind me of our current Congress. Or Darth Vader. A bunch of good old boys looking, at, looking only to take care of themselves. A pack of liars, thieves, and cheats. 
The officers returned to the Pharisees and the chief uh, priests empty-handed. Gee, I wonder why. Why have you not brought him? Verse 45. The officers were dumbstruck. They had never in their life ever heard anyone speak like Jesus spoke. Luke 4.22, all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? They're blown away by the wisdom and the intelligence and the grace and the love that is coming out of the mouth of Jesus. The great thing is that we will be with Jesus one day very soon and we'll be able to hear him speak. We're going to hear it. He said, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. We're going to be with him for all of eternity. Never separated from him, ever. He he is mine and I am his. He is my reward. You hear Xavier said, I don't care if Jesus is in hell. That's where I want to be. I want to be where Jesus is. Pharisees are so far away from God that when the true God speaks to them, they perceive it as deception. Think about that. So far from God that when you actually hear the truth of God from the mouth of God, you take it as a lie. They're goners. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. The next question in verse 48 is interesting. Have any of the Pharisees or rulers believed in him? What are they thinking? Maybe a revolt, a revival, an end to business as usual, maybe an end of their livelihood? Man, if, holy mackerel, this guy. If if our buddies start believing in him, man, it's, it's over for us. The next statement, verse 49, the crowd is accursed because they don't know the law. What's the law got anything to do with it? The mind of the Pharisees and the chief priests, knowing that God is irrelevant, but knowing the law makes you accursed. Not knowing the law makes you accursed. God God is nowhere even on their radar scope. Jesus said, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Nicodemus steps up to bat. You recall back in chapter 3, he came to Jesus by night asking many things, and and Jesus rebuked him. He said, "You're you're the teacher of Israel, and you don't know the truth of God? What's the matter with you? You've got to be born again. And that blew his mind. What do you mean? Remember what he said? Like, how do I go? How do I get? What? I believe Nicodemus took the words of Jesus to heart and became a follower and became born again. Especially since we see him here now stepping in on behalf of Jesus. Now he doesn't, he doesn't come in swinging. But he comes in, you know, like, oh, hey guys, you know... Yeah, chill out a little bit, you know. Let's let's hear the guy out before we kill him, you know. <laughs> and don't kill me, because they turn on him right now. Just because he said that, they turn on they turn on him. 
Nicodemus' friends mock him openly. They're convinced that he's a Galilean. They doubt that, I doubt they even ever asked Jesus what city he was born in. They need Jesus to be from Galilee. Because no prophet has ever come out of Galilee. Oh, he's a Galilean. I don't care what you say. This is the only thing that these guys are right on. No prophet ever came out of Galilee. In summary, Jesus is calling us to himself. He's reminding us, believers, to stick close to him and to abide in him. And there's a strong warning against hypocrisy. Don't become callous. Don't become indifferent. Don't become envious. Don't become a Pharisee. Knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death not only do the same, but also approve of those that practice them. Romans one thirty two. A man once dreamed that he was in hell. And when asked to give an account of what he had seen, if there were flames there and suffering there and wrecked and maligned creatures with whom he had to associate, and if there was a, a place resounded with oaths of blasphemy, he said, yes, but there was something far worse than that. I was compelled to face my influence. I knew that I deserved punishment, for I had scorned and rejected Jesus Christ, but my sorest pain was to see what the effect of my life had been upon the others. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way you teach us by your Holy Spirit, how you've given us direction for our lives, and how you um, have laid out your expectations, and how you empower us to live a victorious life in you, in in your son Jesus Christ, who, who you sent and sacrificed on our behalf. We thank you for that, and we love you for that. We ask that you would um, give us a desire to live a life pleasing. Lord, help us, make us, force us, Lord, even to, to abide in you and to walk with you, Lord. For, for you are the one that has the words of life. You are our Savior. We thank you, God, for what you've done. And we commit this evening to you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God bless you guys.